You've met uh, Pastor Jeremy Isaacs, our campus pastor, and if you were in here earlier, they sang a song to me, If you and if you weren't here, my name is Mark Walker, I'm the senior pastor of Mount Perrin North Canton Campus and Marietta Campus, and it's my joy to have you here with us at our Canton Campus. We are great, great, grateful that you are here. Uh, last week, Easter Sunday, I heard it was amazing here at Canton Campus. I'm sorry that I wasn't here. How many of you are here for the Easter services last week? I heard it was awesome. It was an awesome time here. And I'm sorry I couldn't be here, but uh, I just want to publicly say this. I'm not sure. We're into, what, our fourth month, I guess, somewhere in that neighborhood. And uh, Pastor Jeremy Isaacs has done an amazing, amazing job with this campus. And I want you to express your appreciation to him and Corey and what they've done. You know, I get the privilege to come out here every other Sunday and just sort of walk in here, step up and, and teach. Uh, but him and all of the team that, that has been assembled here at our Canton campus, they're the ones that do all the hard work. And uh, if you by chance aren't a part of the serving team as of yet, uh, whether you can or you can't, just be sure you let those folks know how much you appreciate what they do. They got to get in here early, early, every week, set up all these curtains, everything that you see, get all these classrooms ready for your children. And it is a yeoman's task and they do it with a smile. They do it with love because they love you guys and they love God. And if you haven't had a chance to be a part of the serving team, just be sure, even if you are a part of the serving team, let those folks know how much you mean to, how much they mean to you and how much you appreciate what they do each and every week. If you happen to have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of John. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. These verses will be on the screen here in a moment. John chapter 14, we're going to look at a few verses. John chapter 18, we're going to look at a few verses together. And uh, we'll get into the Word of God here in just a moment. Just have those ready. Again, those verses will be on the screen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for the opportunity that we have here together to just learn of you. And I pray that is what continues to take place. I thank you for this worship here today. I thank you for this great band that led us into your presence. And God, now we turn to your Word to look to you to learn of your truth May it speak to our hearts in a real way now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, what is truth? The truth is honesty, uh, finding the facts, make sure it's really true before you speak it. Okay. That's where I know what truth is. All right, and how do you know that something is true? Like if you follow it and get, gather enough evidence, go look on the internet and so forth and so on. Okay. What is truth? Truth is honesty and a belief in what you think is right. All right, Barbara, what is truth? You just have to be honest about everything. Okay. Change your life, make your life right. I mean, what do you base truth on? How do you know something's true? Well, if you believe something's true, you just your, your heart tells you that it's true. Uh, what is truth? Truth isn't what you seek, it's mostly what you find. Basically, something that cannot be disproven. You know, we live in a culture where we have a lot of spiritual options to choose from, which tends to lead to spiritual confusion. As we heard a little bit of that on the videos we just, we just saw. This morning, as Pastor Jeremy already said, we are launching into a new sermon series entitled God Quest where we're going to look at the compelling evidences and truths that help us understand that 
that the best faith choice and most reasonable faith choice we can make is to choose to follow Jesus Christ and why he is the only way to God. This morning, we're going to look at what is truth. Next week, Pastor Jeremy is going to take a look at how do you know God exists. Two weeks from today, we'll talk about why is there suffering in the world. And then our last time together in this particular series, we'll talk about who is Jesus. Now, our prayerful hope is this, that followers of Christ that will be here throughout this entire series are really going to become more equipped and have greater understanding into the security of their faith and become more solid in that faith. We're also our prayerful hope is that for those in here that maybe aren't followers of Christ, that you're going to have a better understanding after this series to really see why we can trust our lives to Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to take a look at truth. And we're going to look at two conversations with Jesus Christ that's recorded in the Gospel of John. The first one is a conversation that Christ has with his disciples just before he's going to be arrested. The second one is a conversation he has with Pontius Pilate after he is arrested. And what we're going to look at, we're going to look at what Christ says about truth and how truth is significantly connected to him and how we can trust that what we're even reading in the book of John is true. That those conversations actually happened and what they said in those conversations we can believe on as truth. So we got a lot of ground to cover and we're going to do it as quickly as possible. Let's jump into the first conversation. John chapter 14 verses 1 through 6. This is Christ with his followers just before he's arrested. It says this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way, the place to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now let's look at the second conversation. This is after Christ has been arrested. He's talking with Pontius Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor of Jerusalem and Israel. And he's basically interrogating Christ, really seeing, are you a king? Because that's the charge being brought against Christ, that he's being charged with treason because he claims to be a king. So we pick up in chapter 18, verses 37 and 38. Here's the conversation. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. That question that Pilate asks, what is truth? That's pretty much captures the essence of our age, of our culture. We live in a culture that questions truth, that basically says you can't know truth. Or if you can, then truth is really relative. We live in a whatever type of culture. We're a whatever age. That whatever truth is truth is your truth and whatever my truth is, is my truth. That it's all relative, even if you can know truth. Well, Jesus Christ says something very different about truth. Jesus Christ says, I am the truth. And then he says, I came to testify to the truth. And then he really draws a line in the sand. He says, anyone on the side of truth listens to me. Now, that's a real bold statement. In essence, here's what Jesus Christ is saying. He is saying, we can know truth. Can you say that with me, please? We can know truth. You know, we live in a world that says you can't know truth. 
Now, people that say you can't know truth, you know what? They really don't believe that and they really don't live that way, even if they think they believe and live that way. Because every day you and I make decisions from simple to complicated that have tremendous ramifications in our lives. And we make those decisions based on the premise that we can know truth. If you can't know truth, then, then you, you really can't survive. If you can't know truth, then you really don't know what medication you need to take. If you can't know truth, you're not sure what button to push in your office. If you can't know truth, then there's things that you can do in your life that will really bring problems into your life. And when someone says you can't know truth, I ask myself this question. Is it true that you can't know truth? Because if you can't know truth, then how do you know you can't know truth? I mean, if it's true you can't know truth, then you really can't know that you can't know truth. Anybody got a headache yet? I mean, it's a self-defeating premise. And the issue is many of us live our lives believing one way, but actually living not really what we believe. It's a self-defeating thing. When someone says truth is relative, your truth is not my truth, my truth is not your truth. Again, I have to ask myself the question, is that true for everybody? Is it true for everybody that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and not your truth? Because if it's true for everybody, then we're talking about an absolute truth that makes the statement all truth is relative. When we get right down to it, here's the deal. All truth is absolute. All truth is absolute. If it's true, it's true for all people at all places at all times. My name is Mark Walker. That is true all places for all people at all times. Wherever I go, it is absolutely true. My name is Mark Walker. We are sitting in Sequoia High School Theater, the Canton campus of Mount Perrin North. That is true for all places, all people at all times. Right now, for the people in Africa, for the people in Alaska, for the people in Canada, for the people in Marietta, we are sitting. It's absolutely true. We are sitting in Sequoia High School, the Canton campus of Mount Perrin North. All truth are absolute. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That is either absolutely true or it's absolutely false. There's no in-between there. And what we believe doesn't make something more true or more false. Believing something doesn't make it true or false. If it's true, whether I believe it or not, folks, it's true. If it's false, whether I believe it or not, it is false. No matter what I believe about something... Does it make it any more true or any more false? It's one or the other. You know, people often say, and we, and we heard it on the video, that as long as we just believe honestly, if we're just honest and sincere about what we believe, then that's truth. Well, I, I agree that we need to be honest and sincere in what we believe, but folks, we can be honestly, sincerely wrong. I mean, I honestly and sincerely believe that the Falcons were going to win the Super Bowl. And I couldn't have been more wrong. And no matter how much I sincerely, honestly believe they were going to win, they didn't. The truth is, they didn't. And I can't change that. I mean, I'm trying to honestly believe and sincerely believe that the Braves are going to win the World Series. But so far, the evidence indicates otherwise. Believing something doesn't make it any more true or, or, or less true. It's like I heard the story of the, of the man who was driving to work and he came to a stop sign. And, and he just slowed down and he didn't stop. There's a police officer around the corner and saw him, pulled him over and said, sir, you didn't come to a complete stop back there. He said, yes, I did. He said, no, you just slowed down. He said, well, that's a complete stop. He, he said, no, you got to come to a complete stop. He said, I did. He said, no, so you slowed down. He said, that's a complete stop. The police officer said, look, I'm not going to argue with you, but listen, I'm going to give you a warning. 
You need to come to complete stop. Next day, same man, same stop sign, same police officer. He didn't come to a police stop. He slowed down. Police officer pulled him over. They go through the same argument. You didn't slow. You didn't stop. Yes, I did. No, you slowed down. That's stopping. No, that's just slowing down. He said, so that you understand the difference, I'm going to give you a ticket. So then the next day, same man, same stop sign, same police officer. He didn't stop. He slowed down, goes to the stop sign. Police officer pulls him over. They have the same argument. You didn't come to a police stop. Yes, I did. No, you slowed down. That's a complete stop. Finally, the police officer had enough. Reached into the man, reached into the car, grabbed the man by his hair, pulled him halfway out of the car, halfway in, halfway out, takes out a billy club and just starts beating him. And the man yells, stop, stop, stop. The police officer says, you want me to stop? You want me to slow down? Which one do you want me to do? (laughs) It's amazing how absolute truth and morality come when it's applied to us personally. See, what we believe is true matters. If it's true, I could have two identical glasses in my hand right now. Two identical glasses filled with two clear liquids. One's gasoline, one's water. You just ran a 10K. You are dying of thirst. Do you think you need to know the truth of which one's water and which one's gasoline before you drink it? I mean, you could come in and say, you know what? I sincerely believe both of them are water. And you could grab the gasoline and drink it. And your sincere belief will kill you. It's not going to change. That it's gasoline. You say, well, you know, pastor, those are real extremes. And you're talking about physical things that could really injure us. But, you know, when it comes to spirituality and it comes to faith, you know, every religion is teaching basically the same thing. And as long as we uh, sincerely believe the religion that we that we believe in, we're all going to get to the same place. We're all going to get to God. Well, again, yeah, sincerely believing something's very important. And yes, all religions teach some form of truth. I, I don't disagree with that. However, When it comes to teaching about who God is and how you can come to God and eternal life that you can find in God, religions teach very different truths about that. For instance, Buddhism teaches that there is no real God. God God is an altered state of consciousness. Hinduism, on the other hand, teaches that everything is God. You're God. I'm God. This building is God. A cow is God. Islam teaches that there's only one true God, but you can't know him personally. Christianity teaches there's only one true God, and you can know him personally through the person of Jesus Christ. So let me ask this question. How can know God, everything being God, only one true God you can't know, and only one true God you can know through the person of Jesus Christ all be true at the same time? They can't. One's true, three are false. And no matter how much I sincerely believe in the false ones, they're not going to become true. And no matter how much I sincerely believe the one true one is false, is not going to make it false. And does it matter? Yes, it does, because we're talking about eternal life. Eternal life hangs in the balance. It does make a difference. And Jesus Christ makes a statement we got to deal with. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. The only way to come to God is through me. He says, we can know truth. But then how can we know that what we're reading about what Christ is saying is true? See, we can know the truth about Christ. I mean, how can we know that the New Testament writers are writing credible, reliable stuff that we can trust and believe. I mean, how do we know these conversations actually took place? And if they did take place, how do we know John is even recording the truth of what was spoken? So very quickly, let's look at the reliability and the credibility of the New Testament writers. Because if we can get the reliability of the New Testament writers that that what they're writing can be trusted as true, then boy, that really helps us in really making a decision about who this Jesus is. 
Now, we can, we can look at, we could spend the next two months looking at the evidences that shows the reliability of the New Testament, the credibility of it. But obviously, we don't have that much time, and I'm not going to take too much worth of teaching right here. I'm just going to look at a couple of things that help us to see the reliability and credibility of the New Testament. Now, we can do the same thing for the Old Testament. But if we can really receive the reliability and the credibility of the New Testament, the Old Testament gets thrown in. Because the New Testament calls the Old Testament truth. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament. The New Testament says it's the Word of God. So if the New Testament can be seen as reliable and credible, we get the Old Testament thrown in. There's two evidences we're going to look at very quickly. And I really need you to hang with me here for a moment. Because we're going to take a little history stroll together. The first thing we want to look at in the evidence of the reliability and the credibility of the New Testament is we're going to look at the early testimony. The early testimony of these New Testament writers. What we have to understand is when we're talking about history and we're talking about the recording of history, the closer the original writings of the history it's recording, the closer those writings are to the events that they're recording in terms of date and time, the more reliable and credible those sources are. The greater the time gap between the events and the documents that record those events, then the less reliable and credible they are because with the time gaps... You can have uh, misinformation, you can have forgotten information, you can have made-up stories that fall into that time. So the closer the, uh, the original writings are to the events they're describing, the more credible, the further apart, the, the, the less credible. And many people have said the New Testament writers, they wrote so far after the events of Jesus Christ that we really can't trust what they're writing. It's really made-up stuff. Well, let's, look at the, let's look at the criteria in terms of the New Testament with its early testimony. I have a chart up here that we want to take a look at very quickly, please. You see that chart? And it, there's two things we need, to, we need to look at. When we're talking about the first century, there are two events that occur in the first century that about every scholar agrees on. When I say every scholar, I'm talking about Christian and non-Christian scholars alike. Two events in terms of their date that they took place in the first century. The first one you see there, it's the cross. It's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Pretty much agreed on, it happened between 30 to 33 AD. The second event is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which pretty much took place in 70 AD. It is still destroyed. There still isn't a temple in Jerusalem. Now, those are bookends to what we're going to look at in terms of the early testimony of the New Testament. And the first thing we want to look at is the death of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, it's believed by most scholars again, took place around 65 to 68 AD and that he was killed under Nero. He was martyred. Now, the, the, the Bible doesn't talk about the death of Paul, but, but uh, outside sources, uh, uh, non-biblical sources, historical sources tell us Paul was killed under Nero between 65 to 68 AD. The second person we want to look at is, is Simon Peter, another apostle of Jesus Christ. Again, outside sources from the Bible tell us that Peter was was martyred under Nero as well in the early 60s AD. And again, most scholars agree upon that. The Bible doesn't talk about that. Now we look at the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. It's written by Luke. And he tells the story after the ascension and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He tells the story of the beginning and the growth of the New Testament church throughout the Middle East and, and, and over, the, over the, the next several years. Now it's interesting... In the book of Acts that Luke writes, there's no record of the death of Peter or Paul. Now, Peter and Paul are basically the two main characters of the book of Acts. However, Luke in the book of Acts tells us of two martyrdoms. He tells us of Stephen that gets martyred, and he tells us of James, who is the brother of John, that get martyred. Now, there are, they're lesser characters in the story, but the two main characters, Peter and Paul, he never describes their death. 
because they weren't dead. In fact, the book of Acts closes and Paul is under house arrest in Rome and he's proclaiming and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Something else Luke doesn't talk about in the book of Acts. He says nothing about the destruction of the temple. And the destruction of the temple in 70 AD was so such a, a huge event at that time. For someone to know it had happened, if you're writing history, there's no way you can overlook that. It would be like somebody writing a history of New York City from when it began till today and not mentioning the 9-11 attacks. It would just be ridiculous not to do so. The reason why Luke doesn't record it in the book of Acts is because it hadn't happened. It was written prior to that. Now, we also know that Luke wrote the book of Luke, which is the eyewitness account of Christ. It's one of the Gospels. He wrote it before the book of Acts. What we also know is, is that Mark, a Gospel of Jesus Christ, was written before Luke. In fact, Luke most likely used Mark as one of his sources to give his eyewitness account to the life of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to really, really stake my reputation here for a moment. I'm taking a big risk with this next statement. I truly believe Paul and Peter had to be alive when they wrote their writings in the New Testament. I know it's a big risk on my part, but I'm a risk taker. I'm out there. All right. Between Paul and Peter, they wrote 15 of the New Testament books, 15 of the 27. They wrote them. Now, many believe that Mark is actually the eyewitness account of Simon Peter. If it is, then we can add a 16th writing in essence. These guys wrote most of the New Testament. Here's what I'm basically saying. That if not all, most of the New Testament was written before 70 AD. Now, here's the important part. Here's what I want you to see. I've got to step out the light, uh, the light here a moment. Christ died here in 33 AD. We've got eyewitness account testifying of these events happening as early as 50 AD. That's That's... That's basically 20 years after the events. And most of the Old Testament, most of the New Testament is going to happen, be written within a 30-year period. When you're talking about historical writing, and you're talking about the originals are within a 30 to 20-year period of the actual events that they're recording, that is the most credible, reliable sources you can have. That's like a breaking news event for us today. When we're watching TV and all of a sudden there's breaking news that's happening right then and we get that breaking news that scrolls across the bottom of the set. Having original documents written between 20 to 30 years after their event is like a breaking news event when you're talking about history. When it comes to early writings, the New Testament is one of the most credible, reliable texts you can find historically. Because, you see... All of them, if not most, would have been written during the age of the eyewitnesses. See, if you're making up a story, you're just trying to create your own religion, and you're writing stuff that is false, and you've got all these eyewitnesses that know it, they're going to step up and refute you. And the writings of the New Testament that we have have been preserved why? Because thousands of eyewitnesses were alive when these guys were writing these stories. And they accepted them as true because they had seen it themselves. So one of the criteria of reliability and credibility of the New Testament is the early testimony. And the second one we want to look at is eyewitness. These are eyewitnesses' accounts. Now, now many people have said that, look, these guys that wrote the New Testament, they were just trying to, to uh, propagate their own religion. They were trying to advance their own political and religious agenda. 
They wanted to establish this new religion. And so they took this person, Jesus, and they made up all these stories about him. They knew he was a historical figure so they could use that. And then they just sort of made him the front of this religion. They made up all these stories about him being God and all these miracles and his resurrection. But they're really trying to advance their own agenda. Well, let's take a look at this for a moment. Were they really trying to advance their own agenda? But there's two things we're going to look at in terms of eyewitnesses. Number one, we're going to look at the historical accuracy of these writers of the New Testament. Luke, I want to look at two verses in Luke. Luke chapter 3, they're going to be on the screen. If you want to mark them down and go read them for yourself, you can. But I want you to, as we read through this, ask yourself this question. Is this guy making this story up? Here's what he writes in two verses. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Has anybody got a headache yet? I mean, look at this. If you're making up a story, you're not going to include this kind of detail. You're not going to include actual names and places and dates so that then people can come behind you and check you out. How many of you have children? Have they ever made up a story for you? How did you know they were making up a story? How do you know they were lying to you? The details didn't work. They didn't match. Luke, he's given us dates, times, and just to give you how Luke nailed it, here's what we can take from this. We know that this time frame that he's talking about, the exact date is given, A.D. 29. How do we know it's A.D. 29? He said the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. You go back to there, you look at his 15th year of reign, it's A.D. 29. All eight people that he names we know existed in history, and they all existed in A.D. 29. Now let's just go on further to see the accuracy of these guys. Luke, again, let's look at the book of Acts. We were just talking about it. There are some 84 historically confirmed eyewitness details in the book of Acts alone. By archaeological and other historical uh, support, other historical writings that support 84 in the book of Acts. You go to his gospel, you can include more. Luke today is considered by most historians as being one of the greatest historians ever. Well, he's an historian. He's going to keep great detail. All right, well, let's look at one of the other gospels. Let's look at John for a moment. John was a, he's a fisherman. He's not a historian. You look at the book of John and we know that 59 in the book of John, 59 historically confirmed details. In fact, in the New Testament documents alone, they cite more than 30 people confirmed by secular sources and archaeology. How can these guys be so right on? Because they're writing eyewitness truth. The early testimony. The accuracy of these guys with history gives us a great evidence of the credibility and reliability of the New Testament. But then there's also another principle in eyewitness accounts. It's called the principle of embarrassment. That if an author writes embarrassing things about himself and his writings, him or herself, then most likely it's true. Because by human nature, we don't like to tell embarrassing things about ourselves. And if you're making up a story, you're going to make yourself look good. You know, I've done a lot of counseling in my time, and I've had a lot of couples in my office talking about their issues. And I've heard two sides of stories that, man, it's unbelievable. You think, are you two people even living in the same house? But when I listen to one person talk about all the issues, 
I never hear the embarrassing stuff from them. You know where I hear the embarrassing stuff about them? From the other person. Why? Because we don't like to tell embarrassing stuff about ourselves. And we can look at the embarrassing honesty of these eyewitnesses. First of all, here's what these eyewitnesses, these guys wrote about themselves. They wrote, first of all, that they're hard-hearted or, hard, or, or hard-headed. They, they, they were dimwits. They couldn't get it, man. Christ had to repeat himself over and over and over again, and they still often didn't get it. They were hard-headed. They were slow. They just couldn't get it. They wrote that about themselves. They were uncaring. Man, these guys were manipulators. These guys were competitive. These guys tried to, tried, tried to manipulate one another to see who could get the best seat beside Jesus and get most of the attention. They were jealous of one another, envious of one another. They fell asleep on Christ twice. He asked them within the same hour, would you stay up? And they fell asleep twice. They were rebuked. They wrote about Christ rebuking them. Christ rebuked them because they, they didn't believe. Christ rebuked them as some of the things they said. Christ even called Peter Satan. How do we know that? Because they wrote about themselves. He looked at Simon Peter and said, you're Satan. Can you imagine going back in your diary that night? The Lord called me Satan today. It was awesome. God is so good. I'm Satan. They wrote that. They were cowards. How do we know they were cowards? They told us. They said, Lord, we'll never die for you. We'll, we'll die for you. We'll never forsake you. And then when the authority showed up, man, they tucked tail and ran. They hid. We'll never leave you. Simon Peter denied the Lord three times. To two of the people he denied him was a woman and a little girl. Boy, these are... I mean, no guy is going to write that about himself. I'm sorry. And here's the deal. Who were the main witnesses, the first witnesses to discover that Jesus Christ was resurrected. Who were they? All four Gospels tell us. Who were they? Women. Now listen, they're writing in a culture. They're writing in a culture where the testimony of a woman wasn't considered credible. Women weren't even allowed to testify in court because their testimony was considered unreliable. If you're trying to make up a religion... And you want your culture that you're writing to to accept it as true and real. But they don't accept women's testimony as reliable. You're not going to use women as your lead witnesses. They're not that hard-headed. Not to mention, where were the guys when the ladies were out there? They're hiding behind closed doors. They're hiding behind closed doors and the ladies are out doing the dirty work. And all the women said, thank you. We can go on and on. The fact that they include these types of things shows the honesty of the truth in which these guys are writing. And then I would like to say they're convert. They're converted. Now, this isn't necessarily an embarrassing thing, but it's a compelling thing for me because get the picture here. Get the picture here. These hard-headed, uncaring, rebuked cowards encounter personally the resurrected Christ and all of a sudden they become bold and fearless and they go out and they proclaim this message of Jesus to the point that they are martyred I mean I'm talking crucified upside down I'm talking about beheaded I'm talking about dragged behind horses I'm talking about dropped from high places I'm talking about beaten I'm talking about boiled in oil 
What happened? How could they change? They personally encountered this resurrected Christ. And I want to say to you, there are some people who will die for what they believe to be the truth, but really turns out to be a lie. But there's very few, if any, that are going to die for what they know to be a lie. Because if these guys are making up this story, they know it's a lie. History tells us most of them were martyred. They're going to actually go to their death for what they know to be a lie. It takes more faith to believe that, my friend, than it takes to believe the truth of what these people are writing about. Because here's where all this leads. Yes, we can know truth. And we can trust the truth that's written about Christ. Man, there's so much more we could look at in terms of the credibility and reliability. I just can't. We can trust what's written about Christ. The truth. But the deal is, we can know truth personally. We can know this Jesus Christ. And this is the whole reason for why this is written. Jesus Christ said, I am the truth. That's not a philosophical statement. That's a personal statement. That's a personal invitation. He didn't say, I believe in the truth. He didn't say, I can show you the truth. He didn't say, I can tell you the truth. So obviously he can and does, but he was saying, I am the truth. All of this is being recorded for one reason, that you'll know who I am and you'll choose to follow me. That you'll personally walk with me. See, I don't have to know everything about everything about the Lord and God and to take that step of faith. When it all gets right down to it, I want, I want the band to come up if they would, please. When it all gets right down to it, it's this. God has given us just multiple evidences of His reality. We'll talk more about them in the weeks to come. But He hasn't given us all the evidences to prove beyond all shadow of a doubt, to, to just outright prove that He exists and everything. That he's, true. he's given us enough for us to be able to take that step of faith because it still calls for faith. When Christ says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, it calls for a response. And the response can't be whatever. It doesn't work. If it's true, it's true. If it's not, it's not. And if I'm making the decision to reject Him as truth, okay, I'm making that decision, but I want to ask you, on what basis? What, what, what's the basis? Or maybe you're in here saying, you know what? I, I just haven't heard enough yet. I want to investigate more. Great. Investigate more. Please do. Please do. I encourage you. If you're someone in here that sort of dismissed this book as being true and real, but you've really not investigated it, can I encourage you to do something? Can I challenge you a moment? Can I challenge you just to read 2% of the New Testament? That's the book of John. The book of John is 2% of the New Testament. 22 chapters, I believe it is. Maybe 21. I encourage you just to read that. And if there's not a ring of truth that comes within your heart, then at least you're making a conclusion, not on the mistake of not investigating. But at least you've investigated what it is. See, John tells us the reason for the writing. Here's what he says at the conclusion or towards the end of his gospel in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20. He said, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that what? Jesus is the Christ, 
He is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, meaning the Savior of the world. And that by believing you may have life in His name. To know Him personally. This isn't about just having information, data, or knowledge. It's written by eyewitnesses of the events of the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ. And how we can know Him and have life abundant, full, and eternal. A woman wrote me an email. And she told me that she had been raised in a mainline denomination. But when she had never really chosen to follow Christ, she, she knew about him, but never really chose to follow him. When she became an adult, she really walked away from it all. And the same with her husband. They had three children. But then they decided, you know what? We need to get into a church just for the sake of our kids. And they, they joined a church just for social reasons. Just so they could have friends that had good values, both for themselves and for their children. But the woman began to feel like something was missing inside of her. A couple of people showed up on her front door one day and they came with a different religion than she had been raised with. And and she knew and they began to teach her that religion. And she thought, well, they know what they're talking about. They kept telling her that the end was coming and she was doomed for hell if she didn't do all these things. And for six months, they came every week to teach her and tell her all this And she just wasn't sure if she was doing all those things or not. And she was gripped with fear. She became so gripped with fear about the end of the world and going to hell that that she she literally became paralyzed. She couldn't leave the house. She couldn't even do just regular household chores. She became so gripped with fear. And here's where we pick up the story. She said, I was standing at my kitchen sink one mid-morning, still not able to finish the breakfast dishes. I could not take the fear any longer. I stepped back from the kitchen sink, looked up and said, God, if this is what you're like, I don't want to know you. And I meant it. I was crying and trembling when I heard him say, go get your Bible. I walked to my bedroom, picked up my Bible, sat it down in a chair and opened it up. My eyes fell to John 16, 13, and that's going to be on the screen. And this is what 16, 13 said. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth. He'll not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he'll tell you what is yet to come. Talking about the Holy Spirit. Talking about the truth of Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit would bring to us. Then she says, do you know what that did for me? How can I describe it? I knew in an instant that I did not have to listen to those people anymore. I knew in an instant that God was going to show me what I needed to know. That he was the only one I needed to listen to. He took the fear away. And I love this part. I had met truth face to face. He not only was my truth, but deliverer, comforter, guide, enabler, and savior. She said, I consumed the Bible as if it were my own source of nourishment, and it never failed me. She said, I came face to face with truth. That's what Jesus Christ offers us today. And you know what? That spirit of truth. Scriptures tell us about that Jesus Christ of truth we're talking about. He's here right now in this room. Right now, he says, I'm the way and the truth and life. Come to me. And you know what the truth is? The truth is the God of truth is in this room. And the God of truth wants to meet our needs right now. 
He wants to meet our need. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe the God of truth is in here? Do we really believe the spirit of truth is here? To do something maybe really profound? And I, I, want, I, want, I'm, I am stepping out on a limb right now. The other one was a joke, obviously. But I am stepping out on a limb right now. How many of you would say to me, and I, I don't want to embarrass anybody. This is simply to pray with you. But how many of you would say to me without hesitation, Pastor Mark, I have a need in my life that the God of truth needs to meet. I have a need in my life that I need the Lord of truth to meet in my life. It may be financial. It may be spiritual. It may be relational. It may be physical. But you have a need that you need the God of truth to meet in your life. If you raise your hand very quickly, just put it up good and high. I'm going to do something that may be real awkward for some of us in this room. And there's a lot of hands that just went up. I want to do one next step. I want to invite you, if you raised your hand, to just come right down here and stand. And we want to pray and believe with you. If you're, if you're here and you're an altar worker or you're, or you're a pastor, someone that's trained to pray with you, you get up very quickly just come right down here in the front. Very quickly, please. I, I know I'm taking more time than we normally do. And I ask Pastor Jeremy to forgive me of that. He's the campus pastor, but I am his boss, so he has to forgive me. And, and you, the, I, I, I'm not asking to indulge me because I really feel this is what the Lord wants us to do right now. Because this calls for response to believe and trust that this God is real and true. And by faith, make an exercise of faith to really get a hold of that. You raised your hand. You just need, you have a need you want the God of truth to meet. And you would like for one of these to pray for you. I'm inviting you right now just to stand up from where you are. You raised your hand. Come right down here very quickly. Nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to to, to be embarrassed about. This God of truth is here. Just come down. If there's not enough people to pray, if you'll just wait one moment, someone will get you. Just make your way down. The band's going to sing. Invite the band to begin to sing for just a moment. We're going to have a time of ministry right now. A time of just praying for needs and believing for needs, one for the other. And if you're not going to come down, that's fine. No problem. Just remain seated in an act of worship and an attitude of prayer, if you would, please. We're just going to believe for needs right now. This God of truth is here. Those of you standing down front are still being prayed for. That's okay. You just go ahead and continue to be prayed for. Father God, oh, we thank you that you've given us so much evidence to show that you are real and you exist and you love us. And the person of Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. Father, I first pray for those in this room that that still struggle with that reality. I pray that today they've moved closer to who you are, that they can begin just to make that step and say, be the Lord and forgiver of my life. That their sins would be forgiven and that they would begin to walk with you. But Father, I thank you as a God that we can know. You're a God that reveals himself as one who comforts, as one who heals, as one who delivers, as one who makes whole. As one who meets us where we are. And we believe by the spirit of truth we read about that's in this room right now. You have touched us at our deep point of need. We're believing for physical healing. We're believing for emotional healing. We're believing for relational healing. We're believing for financial healing, God. We trust you because you never fail. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. We believe a great work has been done in this place. All for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we give God praise one more time? 